Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. And we have just a little bit to cover in two whole chapters of John. <laughs> so obviously we're not going to be able to cover it all, but I am excited about what we're looking at this morning. And as we're getting a clearer picture of who Jesus is, as John describes him for us, we know that Jesus came, he's the word who became flesh, so that he could explain to us the Father. If we want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. He is the exact representation. So as we open the Word of God this morning, we are asking the Lord to speak to us. And as we moved into John chapter 5, we encountered the third sign that John has recorded for us, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And we were just recently there when we were in Israel, and there's excavation where this pool is. And because in the Scripture it says there were five porticos, many people thought, well, that can't be right. The scripture must be wrong there because how can a pool have five porticos? There are only four sides to a pool, right? Wrong. Because when they excavated and found the pool, they found that it also had a portico across the middle. So there were five porticos <laughs> at the pool of Bethesda. And that's where the lame, the sick would come because there was this rumor, this myth that at some point angels would come down and when the water was stirred, the first person to slip in would be healed. But everybody else was left ill. Does that sound like God? Does that sound like something God would do with an angel? And yet Jesus comes and he sees this man and what's the question that he asked the man? Do you want to be well? And I want you to know that same Jesus is here this morning. And he's saying to you, whatever your issue is, do you want to be well? Because we have to want it first. He's not going to force it upon us. He invites us. It's just like he invites us in salvation. He will not force his will upon us, but he died that everyone might come to Jesus Christ. And he invites us and he asks us, do you want it? Do you really want to be well? Because it will require something of us. What did the man have to do? When Jesus said to him, take up your pallet, get up and walk, he had to believe <laughs> and he had to do what Jesus told him to do. And so do we. And God has given us in his word all that we need for life and godliness, all that we need for inner and complete wholeness and healing in Jesus Christ. I love the quote from our study this week from John Phillips. Jesus put the vital question to him, wilt thou be made whole? Whatever may or may not be said about the sovereignty of God and human salvation, one thing is sure, the human will plays its part. Divine omnipotence never violates the sanctity of the will. God does not ravish, he woos. The Lord will neither heal nor save people against their will. We remember we saw this divine tension, this mystery in John chapter 1. We looked at verses 12 and 13. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The will of man, we must believe, right? But then the very next verse says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Once again, this divine mystery of the sovereignty of God and yet man's free will to accept or reject this gracious invitation. We'll move beyond the healing of the man. Jesus begins speaking to his followers and he's claiming equality with God. And this is what enrages the Jewish Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, because he's claiming to be equal with God. They were angry. In fact, the scripture tells us in John 5, 18, they were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, 
but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus went on as he was explaining to him that there are witnesses that this is who I am. Just look. We looked at those witnesses as we did our study this week. John the Baptist was a witness. We see in verse 33, he said, You have sent to John. He has testified to the truth. John testified that Jesus was the Lamb of God. He made it known it was not him and that it was time for him to decrease so that Christ must increase, right? His works. Jesus went on to say, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is saying, just watch what I'm doing. If you wonder who I am, my works point to the Father and explain to you who I am. We also have the Father himself. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. What do we know happened at his baptism? The spirit descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven was heard saying what? This is my beloved son. Right? We have the acknowledgement of the Father. But we also have the scriptures. Jesus said in verse 39 of chapter 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. In fact, he goes on to say, even the writings of Moses, right? Verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We know all of the Old Testament was a picture of and pointed to Christ. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Once again, we see in John 6 verse 40, it says, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. What are we seeing? It's what we saw a couple of weeks ago. We must see and believe. But we must believe before we can see. And we must believe to be able to see and to enter in, to actually be born again. So we're going to move on into John chapter 6 because it happens to be one of the longest chapters in all the New Testament. <laughs> but we have two major miracles happening here that we want to look at. The first one is the feeding of the 5,000. It's our fourth sign. And I want us to think about what was going on here. You know, I love the fact that this particular miracle is actually recorded in all four of the Gospels. And in Matthew, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 14, this is going to give us a little bit more insight. Anytime something is recorded in multiple Gospels, you want to read it in all of the Gospels where the account is given because all of us have a perspective, and each of the authors had an audience to which they were writing that they were trying to prove the deity of Christ to. So they have a little bit different take. So we get the full picture as we look at each of the Gospel accounts. Well, in Matthew, we get a little additional insight in Matthew 14, verses 13 and 14. Now what's happened, the first part of chapter 14, is John the Baptist has been beheaded. We know that Herod was having a big party, and he had his brother Philip's wife, and John had been telling him that that was wrong, he should not have his brother Philip's wife. And so when his birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, his wife, danced before him, and she pleased him and all of his drunken friends so much that he basically said, you can have whatever you ask up to half the kingdom. And her mother told her to ask for the head of John the Baptist, which is exactly what she did and what she received. And in verse 13, or verse 12, it says, His disciples came, John the Baptist's disciples, and took away his body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. 
Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Now what's happening here? Remember, Jesus is God, but in the flesh. Fully man, fully God. And what has he just heard? His cousin, his forerunner, John, has been beheaded at the wicked hand of King Herod. He had emotions, we know that. When he went to the tomb of Lazarus, what did he do? He wept. And yet he knew he was about to call him forth from the grave. But why did he weep? Because of the pain, the separation, the death that comes with sin. Because of what it does to us in separating us from him. So I know he had to have been moved. And so what does he do? He wants to withdraw. He wants to be alone with his disciples. If you're in grief, if you're suffering, if you're concerned about something, if something's hit you pretty hard, what is our tendency? It is usually to pull away, is it not? To want to be with people that we're very close to. And that's what he did. But when he got out of the boat, what did he see? All these people, because he'd been healing people, they'd been seeing these signs, they'd heard about him. They're coming from everywhere to find help. And Jesus looks at them, and instead of thinking about himself, what does the Bible tell us? He felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He knew they were lost. They were wandering. They were seeking. And so what does he do? He begins to heal them. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour's already late. So send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And one commentator said the fish would have been what it means like, like sardines. So we're talking about five little rolls and a couple of little sardines, okay? <laughs> not even enough to, feel, to feed a grown man. They said, this is all we have. How meager is this? How could we possibly feed this crowd? And he said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. Breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. That word literally means gorged, completely full. Um, Allie and her family are in town. They are in the midst of moving from one church to another. They're going to be starting a new church this weekend. And so we're very excited for them and what God is doing in their life. But I did my father's favorite meal last night. And I have a cousin who married a woman who's of Italian descent. And she can cook spaghetti sauce. They call it gravy like nobody's business. It is so good. And so, of course, as any true Italian would do, she doesn't measure anything. She says a little bit of this and this much spice and a little bit of that. And so I got all of her ingredients from her. We've all been wanting her recipe forever. So I got all of her ingredients. And then I got online and found a recipe that was similar to her so that I could get some measurements because I don't cook without measurements. I wasn't going to guess at this. So I did a huge pot of spaghetti. And if you know, it's a lot of fresh ingredients, and they have to simmer for a really long time. The longer it simmers, the better it is. And then I made homemade meatballs, which my sister has another friend who's Italian, and she has her grandmother's meatball recipe. So I made the meatballs. Well, I fixed the spaghetti sauce the night before. Then yesterday afternoon, put it on so it could simmer for about four more hours. The meatballs have to be in there for about two to three hours because you put them in there not cooked you know and you just put it all in well I'd made such a huge pot of spaghetti that I had to divide it up into two big pots on my stove because I couldn't put the meatballs in without it overflowing I mean it was that much spaghetti and so I had it all going it smelled wonderful but can I just tell you when we finished eating last night I was so full <laughs> I think this is what he's talking about 
<laughs> it says everybody ate and they were satisfied. They were gorged. I think I gorged last night. They were completely full. But that doesn't stop there, does it? They picked up what was left over of their broken pieces, 12 baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. Now, how many disciples are there? What is God saying here? First of all, Jesus is going to tell us as we move on in this that he didn't come to give away bread. He came to be the bread. He is the bread of life. But he's teaching them through a physical picture, spiritual truth. And he's showing them, all I'm asking of you is give me what you have. I'm not asking you to give me something you don't have. But I'm going to call on you to do things that are way beyond your ability with just what you have. Don't look at what somebody else has. Don't say, I'd do more if I had what this person has. Give me your little lunch. Give me your mere little rolls and your couple of sardines. <laughs> you give them to me, and, and guess what I'll do with it? I will bless it, and I will break it. What did he break? He broke the bread. What would be broken for us? His body, which is what? The bread. <laughs> it would be broken for us, and guess what? It satisfies. His bread satisfies he gave him a beautiful physical picture and he fed the multitude some say well 5,000 men plus women and children so if there was just one woman for every man and one child for every man you know typically you think a couple of kids but at any rate it was at least 15,000 maybe 20 something maybe 25,000 people fed with five little rolls and two sardines and there were 12 baskets full left over what did he say to the disciples, gather up the leftovers. Every disciple had a basket. So not only did he feed the multitude, but he ministered to them individually. Not only did he have enough with that meager little lunch to feed the multitude, there was an abundance left over for the disciples. That's how Jesus works. You can say, well, I would tithe if we made a little bit more money. We still don't make enough money to tithe. Or I would give to somebody else or to a minister or I would help a single mom or I would make a donation to a ministry or, or I would do this if. No. Jesus says, just bring me your little lunch. Bring me the little boy's lunch. Bring me what you have. And when you give what you have, I will break it, I will bless it, and I will use it to feed the multitudes. And not only that, I'm going to give you so much more in return so that you have extra to give out again because you cannot outgive God. We reap what we sow. He will bless us so that we can be a blessing. We're simply channels. We're just vessels that he flows through. And when we hold everything like this, whether it's a meager lunch or it's a million dollars, whatever it is we have, it's not ours anyway. We're simply stewards. This world is not our home. And that's what Jesus is saying. And he's about to explain to them the truths of the kingdom. Not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of heaven. But he's, he's telling them a new kingdom has come. A new kingdom has come. And when we are in Christ, we are no longer a part of this kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. And we are the vehicles through which the will of God, the kingdom of heaven, comes from heaven to earth. It's exactly how Jesus told us to pray. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of heaven. 
He said in Mark 17, 21, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What brings the, ki the kingdom? Salvation. When we repent and believe, the kingdom comes in us. He also said the kingdom of God is in the midst of you in Luke. Jesus embodies the kingdom motif of God's people in God's place under God's rule. Jesus is both the faithful ruler and the righteous citizen of the kingdom. Luke described Jesus' mission and ministry as proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. But the Jews were looking for a political king. And we know that in John chapter 6, what do the people want to do? They wanted to grab him and make him king, right? He feeds us. This is awesome. He, he does all these miracles. So obviously he can deliver us from the oppression of Rome. And not only that, our bellies will be full. Sound like a welfare state to you? <laughs> That's what they were wanting. That's what we crave in the flesh. And yet Jesus said, no, that's not why I came. I came to bring salvation. I have come to die this time. I will come as conqueror the second time, but this time I come as savior. You've got it wrong. You know why? You're thinking in the natural. You're thinking in the terms of the kingdom of this world. I didn't come to establish a kingdom like you're wanting, not a political kingdom. I came to establish the will of my Father, the kingdom of heaven on earth by only doing what the Father wills. So he slips away again. He sends the people away, tells the disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side. He'll meet them there because he still hasn't had his time alone. <laughs> so he goes away on the mountain to be with the Father, to meet with him. And he's there evidently most of the night because he comes to the disciples in the midst of the storm, Matthew tells us, in the fourth watch, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So we think, okay, he fed them all, he sends the crowd away, gets them off. Maybe they, you know, they could have been rowing in this storm for several hours, frustrated. And because the mountains around the Sea of Galilee and because it's very deep, storms can come up very quickly. And these boats are small and they're shallow. And so I'm sure they were frightened and they're rowing like crazy. And I want us, because you studied John, I want to read it to you out of Matthew because it gives us a little bit more insight. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. I mean, can you imagine? It's storming. Waves are lapping up on the boat. Obviously, it's dark. You can't see, but there's this form walking towards you on the water. They were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage. It is I. Literally, we know we studied this week. He was saying, I am. I am. It is me. Don't be, do not fear. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, he had stepped out of the boat. He was walking on water. I don't call that little faith. But what happened? Because how many times have we said, yes, Lord, and we step out of the boat, and then we look at the circumstances and go, <laughs> what was I thinking? I can't do this. That's where, that's where fear took over. And what does fear do? It pushes out faith. Because faith and fear 
cannot coexist in the human heart. One forces out the other. And Jesus is rebuking him for his lack of faith. Peter, you believed enough to step out of the boat. You believed enough to literally walk on water. You were standing on water. Why did you take your eyes off of me? I don't know what your circumstance is right now. I don't know what storm you're in. And all of us have been there or will be there. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. He is faithful. What did we just sing? He's a way maker. He's a miracle worker. <laughs> he, his promises are true for us. He's a promise keeper. He's the light of the world. He will bring light to your darkness. He will bring calm to the chaos. He will calm the storm in your life. But you may have to row for a while. <laughs> you may have to row and wait on him, but you don't take your eyes off Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We set our minds on things above. That's how we stay above the storm. That's how you're able to walk in calmness when all about you is chaos. I spoke to a parenting group Sunday morning, and as I was thinking about what parents are up against in our culture, it's so much more than what I was dealing with when my children were growing up because cell phones were just really coming around when our first one was a teenager. By the time Bethany became a teenager, we had smartphones, but we really just kind of eased into it. Now they're everywhere, and we have an 11-year-old granddaughter who's like the only person in her sixth-grade class that doesn't have a cell phone. And so parents are up against much more media. And, you know, as I was just thinking about this and praying through what I was going to be sharing with them, I realized the word that came to my mind was vortex. And I thought I knew what a vortex was, like the center of a tornado, a whirlwind. But I had to look it up to make sure I was correct. And this, here's the definition out of Merriam-Webster's. It's a mass of fluid such as liquid with a whirling or circular motion that tends to form a cavity or vacuum in the center of the circle and to draw toward this cavity or vacuum bodies subject to its action. The storm is all around us. And Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to either build your life on a rock, the firm foundation of Christ and his word, or you're going to build it on the flesh and the world. And that's a sand foundation, which will not stand. Both houses are subject to storms. But what did he say about the house built on the rock? It will not fall. It, it will stand. So what does that tell me about a vortex? The enemy is wicked, and he is scheming against us, and he is scheming against our families, and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his MO. That's what he does. So he's scheming against you. He's scheming against your family. And the evil world system is like sucking us <laughs> just toward the vortex into darkness and chaos. Turn on the news. Is that not a vortex? <laughs> I mean, good gracious. <sighs> that's, that's what the news is. Everybody's yelling at everybody, and everybody's polarized and divided. And you can get sucked into that, can't you? And it makes you feel anxious and fearful. Don't get sucked in. If you have to turn it off and don't watch it, don't watch it. Open the Word of God and understand He is King. He is on His throne. He will prevail. Nothing will happen here that will not ultimately bring about His purposes. And if we will, amen, if we will build our lives on the foundation of His Word and fix our eyes on Jesus, we will not be sucked in. We will not be sucked in. In fact, we will stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. We will expose the schemes of the enemy, and we will bring many to the light of the gospel. That is what Christ has called us to, to walk above the storms of life. Jesus said, 
I am. And he sang that to us this morning. He sang it to each one of you. I am. Whatever your need may be, I am. I am the I am for your circumstance, for your marriage, for your wayward child, for your loss of a job, for your fear of the future, for the diagnosis you've received. I am. I am your I am. If you have no other need, if you have me, I will meet your every need. And he moves from this. I'll jump back to John chapter 6 into teaching and explaining them about this upside-down, inside-out kingdom of heaven that doesn't make sense to the natural mind, but it makes sense in the Spirit because it can only be understood through the Spirit. Without the Spirit, you cannot understand. And in explaining the difference of the kingdom of God in the world, Jesus tells them not to work for the food that perishes. Their understanding was limited to the temporal. Jesus told them not to work, for, but to work for the food which endures to eternal life. What did Jesus say to the enemy when he was being tempted in the wilderness? Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What did Moses say to the Israelites after he'd gone through all of the, the laws and the rules that God had given? All of the blessings. If you do this, then these blessings will literally overtake you. But if you don't obey, then these curses will come upon you. And when he got to the end of that, he said, these instructions are not empty words. They are your life. They are your life. God's word literally is our life. So the people ask, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered, in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It takes us back to that word again. The word that John uses so many times, believe. We must believe. That's our job. Because if we're believing, we will see. We will see and we will understand and we will live according to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. James Bryan Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, said, there's no true wholeness significance or joy apart from life in Christ God's not being stingy and withholding joy apart from our obedience there simply is no joy apart from a life with and for God now think with me just a moment the God life leads to forgiveness of our enemies in fact to loving our enemies leads to generosity of spirit of life, time, resources, service, to communing through prayer with God the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. He invites us to join him in seeing his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He releases in our life through his Spirit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Jesus said... Come to me, all who are weary and burdened or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, it's because you haven't rolled the burden over onto him. It's because you're still trying to do it yourself. It's because you're still out there rowing in the storm instead of letting go and crying out to him. Jesus, 
I need you. Fixing our eyes on him, digging into the word of God, and seeing what he will do. Ladies, this is not behavior modification. That's the Pharisees. It is not legalism. That's the Pharisees. It is not rule following. That's the Pharisees. It is inner life transformation. It is setting your affections on Jesus Christ so that he begins to change everything about you. And sin loses its hold in light of him. Jesus went on to say in John 6, 63 through 64, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you still who don't believe. Dallas Willard said, A disciple, a follower of Christ, is someone who is learning by going through the process of change. All the things that we moan about and talk on and on about, such as pornography, divorce, drugs, are things that can be dealt with effectively only by bringing change into the mind and the spirit, into the will, into the body, into the fellowship of the, per the person. Then people come out saying, who needs that stuff? Why would that even be enticing? I've got something so much better than that. Jesus is about bringing the life of the kingdom of God into my life now and making me a citizen of that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, allowing me to see the kingdom of heaven and not be entangled in the kingdom of this world. No longer living for the approval of man, but living for his approval and his only Are you saying, yes, I believe this is true? Or are you saying, this is truth, and <laughs> my very life depends upon it? That is where we have to be. Therein lies the difference in those who give just mental assent to the truths of Scripture and those who know the Word of God is our very life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word. What did he say to the Pharisees? You search the scriptures thinking that in them you're going to find eternal life. They point to me. Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the one we encounter when we open the Bible. He is the word of God. That's why it's living and breathing. It pulses with the very breath of God. And when we open it and our spirits are open, submitted to him, he speaks to us through his word. He is our life. His kingdom has come. It's in us. Release it. <laughs> Release it. Let go. Surrender fully, completely, holding nothing back putting it all on the altar because his words are life and there is not life anywhere else. Everything else squeezes the life out of you. Come to him. Come to him for life. Come to him as your burden bearer. Come to him. Come to him. He's invited you. He's issued the invitation. All, all who are weary, and heavy laden come and I will give you rest because his yoke is easy and his load is light because when you're walking with him seeing his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven when you're walking with him he carries the load and when he carries your load he lifts you above the circumstances of life and you begin to see 
with kingdom eyes and you're no longer bound, you're set free. Free to be who Christ has called you to be, free to accomplish what he wants to do in you and through you, and there is no limit, there is no limit to what God will do through just one fully surrendered individual. What will he be able to accomplish when all of us say, yes, yes, Lord, yes. I'm so tired of rowing on my own. I'm so tired of trying to make this work. Yes, yes to you. Whatever that may mean, you are my I am, and my eyes are going to be fixed on you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just bow before you. Father, this is foundational truth for your kingdom. It does go against the grain of the flesh. But Father, we choose today to die to our flesh. That Jesus Christ might live in us and through us. Father, we're asking you to do what only you can do. We're asking you to use us to be your light, to pierce the darkness, to take love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. As your spirit flows through us, we go out into the world with all the goodness of your glory and we meet needs, and we bless people, and we take the good news of the gospel, and we see you transform a culture person by person. God, that is your plan. Forgive us for thinking we can huddle up and just have Bible studies and by knowledge change a culture. It is the power of your spirit unleashed in individual lives that changes others. God, we are your disciples, your ambassadors, Would you fill us, take over our physical bodies, open our minds to the truth of the kingdom life, and let us no longer be bound to the kingdom of this world. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus until that day we see him face to face. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.